Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com. And definitely check out those shows as well. Dean Kuntz is the author of Quicksilver and The Big Dark Sky, a novel. International best-selling author Dean Kuntz was only a senior in college when he won an Atlantic Monthly Fiction competition, and he has never stopped writing since. He is the author of Quicksilver, Elsewhere, The Other Emily, Devoted, and 79 New York Times bestsellers, 14 of which were number one, including One Door Away from Heaven, From the Corner of His Eye, Midnight Cold Fire, The Bad Place, Hideaway, Dragon Tears, Intensity, Soul Survivor, The Husband, Odd Hours, Relentless, and more. I wonder if he could name all of these books. I should have asked him that. He's been hailed by Rolling Stone as America's most popular suspense novelist, and his books have been published in 38 languages. I don't think I could name 38 languages, and have sold over 500 million copies worldwide. Born and raised in Pennsylvania, he now lives in Southern California with his wife, Gerda, their golden retriever, Elsa, and the enduring spirits of their goldens, Trixie and Anna. Welcome, Dean. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Quicksilver, which is already out, and The Big Dark Sky coming out in July. Well, thank you for having me there. 
Oh, it's my pleasure. You've sold like 350 million copies of your books. That's the most insane amount of books I have ever heard of anybody selling. How how do you sit down each time and then try to come up with something totally different and not feel overwhelmed by the success of the past? Or maybe I'm making this up and you don't feel overwhelmed at all. Uh, well, first of all, we say 500 million now. So, 500 million. Oh my gosh. I'm let's, sorry. Let's not underplay this. Uh, yes. So. Okay. Might even say half a billion. That's crazy. But yeah, it's always a challenge when you sit down with it. You're always afraid you're not going to have anything to write. Uh, at least initially, I usually have an idea in my head. And sometimes that's when I start with. And then another idea comes along in a day or two and it captures me and I just have to write it. As the older I get, now that I'm 185, <laughs> uh, I, I find out that if it isn't something that seems almost impossible to pull off, then I'm not interested in it. Mm. It has to be more difficult, not less. And that's strange because when I was very young and starting out, I thought, oh, there's only so many tricks you have to learn. And once you learn them, every book will get easier. Well, I found that wasn't true. They get harder and harder. And it's the more difficult they get, the more fun it becomes to write them because it's a challenge. It's always kind of inspirational to think you could fall flat on your face and make an idiot of yourself. And so, therefore, you strain not to do that. I love that. Fiction as a way to just not make a fool of yourself. That's great. (laughs) So Quicksilver starts with the backstory of Quinn Quicksilver, QQ to his friends or something like that. And he had been left in on the road and then deposited at an orphanage. And we come back later in his life and find out what the scene had really looked like to the three men who found him, which was very interesting and not what I was expecting when they relived that situation either. Tell me more about this book and and what it really meant to you and and what made it such a big challenge that, that got you very excited about it. Well, first of all, anytime you tell a book in a first person voice, you have to create a unique voice for that character. Otherwise, why, why do it? And I wanted Quinn Quicksilver to be very funny and very naive. And I've done that before in a character named Odd Thomas. And I didn't want it to be so like Odd Thomas. You thought it was an Odd Thomas novel. So there was a challenge in that. But I also wanted it to be a novel about free will and why the world is the way it is, why evil exists and why the world could not exist as a free place if there was no evil. In other words, how do you explain to a a reader who may be very upset with the world we're living in and for good reason, why it is that way? And if it was not that way, if there wasn't uh, evil, if there wasn't setbacks in our lives, we would be creatures without freedom because we would have no choice to make. We'd be robots. And how do you get that through in the story and talk about that in a serious way without boring the butt off everybody or offending anybody. And Quinn's story was a way to approach that with a lot of humor, but also suspense and danger and all those elements that make us want to turn the pages of the novel. So, but it started for me with just that image hmm. of a little baby in a 
in a bassinet sit on, sitting in the middle of a de- desert highway at early in the morning and found by three people on the way to work. And I didn't even know what the book was about when that image came into my head. But it was so irresistible that I had to do something with it. Wow. And then from there, we move on to Montana for your next book, The Big Dark Sky. What was your flash of lightning for this book? I'd long been fascinated with what Jung called uh, synchronicities, those coincidences in life that are so amazing, they seem to be more than coincidence. What Jung eventually came with, came up with uh, as a psychologist was that uh, coincidences aren't coincidences, that our lives are full of them, and we dismiss them as coincidences, and we dismiss them so much that we only recognize them when they're extreme. Mm-hmm. I mentioned a, real, a number of real coincidences in the book, one of which was a, a church in Oklahoma back in the, I'm forgetting now whether it was the 50s or the 60s, but they'd had choir practice for 15 years every Sunday night at the same hour, and no one had ever been late. And then this one Sunday, all 15 uh, choir members were late for each for a different reason. One overslept or took a nap and overslept. One of them got a migraine headache. One of them had a car breakdown. Nobody got there on time. The nearest anyone did was a woman who was about five minutes late. Two minutes after they should have all been there, the church blew up in a gas explosion. Now, there's a coincidence that makes you stop and think. And I've been collecting these uh, most of my life because I find them fascinating. And I always thought fascinating. And I always thought there is a novel in this. My first thought for decades was the novel would be the reverse of The Bridge Over San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder, in which he has a character try to explain why this bridge in the 1600s fails and these people fall to their death. What about these people? Why these people? And he he means to find that there's meaning in this. And what he ends up finding is there is no meaning. I thought maybe it'd be more interesting to say, now that we understand quantum mechanics and that there really do not seem to be any coincidences in the world, quantum mechanics shows you how intricately integrated everything is. The butterfly effect is one thing that most people know. The idea that if a flock of butterflies is disturbed in flight, with its wings disturbs the air, it affects the weather in Chicago. Maybe in the infinitesimal way, but also everything affects everything else in ways that are very mysterious and strange. So by the time I got to write this, I thought, no, it's more a book about how C.J. Young uh, and his theories actually are supported by quantum mechanics. And there would be this whole cast of characters who seem to come together by coincidence. But when you get to the very end, it almost could not have worked out any other way. And it was a challenge to write that because it was one of those books you could look like an idiot. And I've looked like an idiot many times in my life. So it would have been just one more. It's always worth the risk. (laughs) Wow, very interesting. I'm going to look at all the coincidences in my life with a with a new eye at this point. You've been writing, as you said, for, well, maybe not 108 or whatever you joked about, but for many years. And I'm curious as to the changes you've seen in the publishing industry and where we are now, and then your decision to 
be published by an Amazon publishing company? Well, it has been a radical change in publishing. Many times, I think it's been publishers shooting themselves in the foot. They have done things. I can remember when I was hearing from my publisher almost gleefully that they were going to destroy the mass market paperback business because the price point was too low. Eight or $10 for a mass market profit on that was not as high as they wished. And they were going to shift everybody into $16 trade paperbacks. And my first thought was, no, you're not. You're not going to get millions and millions, tens of millions of people who are buying mass market to pay twice as much. You're not even going to get half of them to do that. And as a consequence, you're losing all of that display space. You used to go into supermarkets drugstores, everywhere you went there with those paperbacks, Mm -hmm. which were actual little posters that sucked you in, that got you to do impulse buying and find new writers. It's not the same to look at those little tiny postage stamp things on a screen as it is to see those real books in real outlets. But there was success in that. It pretty much destroyed the mass market retail industry in the hopes that it would lead to this uh, more profitable trade paperback. So we went from 500 uh, distributors of mass market paperbacks to five over a period of years. That really has hurt writers. It's hurt the publishing business. It's harder to launch a writer now. And ebooks have made up for some of that, but only for maybe 20% of it. And uh, unfortunately, now all writers, new and older, have to live with that. So I've also seen changes in which a lot of what's driven that publishers want to promote is what's chosen by book clubs run by celebrities or run by network television or whatever. But there's a sameness in all that that only appeals to a certain variety of readers, a certain wedge of readers. And it leaves out a lot of people who want something else. And I think that's had a negative effect. Yes, the writer's fortunate enough to get chosen in that, do extremely well. But I once noted that if they're not chosen by that book club again, they don't have a supper, generally speaking. They may have one more and then that's it. That means the readers weren't that enamored of the book or they would have stayed with that writer book mm-hmm. after book. So as a consequence, these changes and a number of others I won't go into have been profoundly effective on the business. And at one point, I was I was at that point of age. I'm sure age uh, had something to do with it. My publisher probably said, oh, well, what's he got in a anymore? Three more books, four more books, five more books. And as a consequence, I saw promotion, publicity, all that just disappear. Hmm. And I still owed a couple of books. So I said to my agents, I didn't have agents for 14 years, but then I got agents a few years ago. And I said to them, look, uh, we've got to try something. Let's let me pay back uh, my publisher for the two books I haven't delivered yet. And let's go out there and see what interest there is and what another publisher might do to promote. Uh, So we went out. And we got eight or nine uh, offers. Most of them, all but one of them, was from traditional American publishers. And there was there was were offers as good as the one that came in from Amazon. They were sold all over the lot, but 
But one thing that mattered to me was what is your marketing plan? Mm-hmm. Some of the U.S. publishers didn't even bother to give a marketing plan. The biggest other marketing plan was two pages. When Amazon's offer came in, which was as good as a couple of others that were at the top, it came with a 30-some page marketing plan. And it was a brilliant marketing plan. I looked at that and I said, okay, now here's the downside. Amazon sales are not counted for bestseller books, mm-hmm. even though Amazon sells 60% of all books sold in the country. So you're not going to be a bestseller anymore. But what's more important, we get into this to communicate, to reach out to people. I never got into it thinking it would become as big as it did. And as a consequence, I, I said, I want to reach as many people as I can reach. And it looks like Amazon, Thomas, and Mercer would be much better at doing that. And they have been. Uh, so it was eye-opening. It's It was very strange to a lot of people that I stepped out of the, that. But Amazon, Thomas, and Mercer are doing very well-produced books. Their hardcover books are better made than the hardcover books that of mine that were being made by my former publisher. They're prettier. They have decorative end papers. They do little design for part breaks. They have designs on boards of the books. That all went away in New York publishing a long time ago. So as a book collector, I'm happy. As a writer, I'm happy. And it's kind of strange to be at this point in my career, but I'm so glad I found this safe harbor. Hmm. Very interesting. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes we all have stuff we need to get off our chests. Even if we don't think it's interfering with our daily life, there are some things you just haven't processed, be it grief or trauma, eating disorders, anything. It might be time to work on those things, and I have a solution for you. Therapy. Online therapy by BetterHelp. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. I took the brief questionnaire online where there were, I don't know, 20 questions. It didn't take long at all, maybe three minutes. And then I got matched with a therapist who could help me work on whatever. I picked trauma because even though it happened in 2001, I am somehow still not over the loss of my friend on 9-11. And it is what it is. BetterHelp is going to help. And I am so excited, especially because with my special code, instead of $80 a month, it is 10% off, $72 a month, which is so much less than traditional therapy, and you'll get a perfect therapist for you. 
There are 35,000 therapists to choose from, so you'll find the right one. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MomsDon'tHaveTime today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MomsDon'tHaveTime. So I have a, a memoir coming out, and it is, I did go with Amazon myself, Little A, which is a fiction and, and memoir imprint of Amazon Publishing. And, you know, it's been a very interesting conversation, especially with the bookstores, because it's not just the bestseller list, but some indie bookstores also don't want to carry Amazon Publishing mm-hmm. books, which I keep saying to the owners is just shooting themselves in the foot, because if someone comes in to buy my book, you're not going to have it, and then they're going to go buy it from Amazon. Mm-hmm. So why don't they just carry it? There's a hatred of Amazon sometimes in the business that's irrational. I understand it because they came out of nowhere, essentially, from most thinking, and became dominant in the book business. But if you're in the book business, it seems to me, you want to stop and think, why? Why did that happen? It wouldn't happen if we were competing in the right way. Mm-hmm. And uh, But there isn't a lot of self-analysis, I'm afraid. And I have a lot of friends in the independent book business because I sold a lot of books to them. And I find it sad, uh, but understandable. They feel they're dealing with a competitor. But I've even known some of them would handle Barnes & Noble book that Barnes & Noble published, even though it's a competitor, but they wouldn't handle an Amazon book. Mm -hmm. But some do. We have a number of independents that carry minor books. And everything changes. And uh, I had to make that change or watch my career, which had been more successful than I ever imagined, just be sort of winnowed away and beyond my control. And I didn't like that. I was working as hard as ever, and mm-hmm. uh, and I believed in what I was doing. So I needed to be somewhere that they shared that sentiment. And I found in the team at Thomas and Mercer the most creative, efficient, enthusiastic group of people I could have hoped to have found. And it makes a difference when you're with people who think what you're doing matters to them and they want to get it out there. And it's that simple. You have to, as a writer, try to find that place. A lot of writers are too afraid to do it because mm-hmm. they think there'll be no going back. And maybe there isn't. I don't know. If this fails, I might be persona non grata in, <laughs> uh, in most publishing. But that's very sad because with other publishers and with especially a lot of bookstores, we have a lot of success together. We still could if attitudes would change. But uh, I can't change attitudes more than I can do by just writing my books. Interesting. Well, I've also started my own publishing company, which and we have books coming out starting in January. And it was sort of based on the premise of of changing things up from the way things had been done before. And marketing is a huge, a huge, I mean, if not the the biggest thing, aside from uniting authors together, that we're doing because of the way it's been done historically. So if you were going to start your own firm right now, what would what would you do to make a difference? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God I don't have to start my own firm at 185. I, there's things, if I had been younger, I would have thought about doing this. But right now, it, it has to do with marketing. It has to do with understanding the audience. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is the biggest thing I would do. One thing that I learned over the years, and it's it's not I'm not saying this to make angry anyone in New York Publishing, but there is a complete 
nearly complete lack of understanding who the audience is. They publish for a wedge of the audience, and they publish with they publish a lot of things with a kind of contempt, and they shouldn't do that because that. And lately, they don't even publish for that audience very much. They've narrowed it and narrowed it and narrowed it. And as a consequence, where they used to, even if with a certain contempt, publish for 90% of the public, I think they now publish for 35% of the public. And, and you can't do that. You can't be classicist about it. You can't have contempt for other tastes. And I'm not even talking political or anything now. I'm just talking other taste. Mm -hmm. But that I've noticed over the years is a big deal in publishing. So I think the thing that a successful publisher has to look at is who is that audience? And, you know, I never had until very late in my career could never persuade a publisher to do marketing research to find find out who read my books. For many years, my publishers told me, 80% of my readership was male. I knew that wasn't true because of two things. We were getting thousands of letters a year from readers and about 60% of them from women. When I would do book signing, 60 to 70% of the people who would stand in line for five hours to get their book signed were women. And I could never make my publishers focus on that in marketing and publicity because it was their idea that what I wrote, only men read or largely men read. So without understanding who your market is, uh, it's and then having certain contempt for it so that you winnow down not publishing to those aspects, I don't know how you go on in business. So if I were starting it, that would be what I'd want to do is what am I publishing? Who are the readers for this? And I don't care what jobs they have, what political opinions they have. Uh, I don't care anything about them except what do they like to read and let's make sure we give it to them. And that doesn't mean writing down to an audience because I've found that by my mail and everything, I was also, not to drone on at you, but I was also told that my vocabulary was too big. My ideas were too complex in my stories to get a mass audience. Well, we got one anyway, because the public is smarter, more aware, and more interested in challenging stories than is often thought. And diminishing them, they know it when there's sold stuff that diminishes, they buy it in fewer numbers that diminishes them. And I think we've seen that what's happened in book sales over my lifetime. Very interesting. Truly, truly interesting. Thank you for that. I know that wasn't what you were prepared to necessarily talk about, but uh, I'm interested, so I, I appreciate it. So what what is your next book? And how long does it take you to write each of these books? Well, now I work at my desk 60, 70 hours a week. So yet uh, I'm almost doing double duty here, sometimes even longer at the end of a book. I've got a couple of books in inventory that I think are among the best things I've done. One of them is called The House at the End of the World, which is very scary, but very emotional and uh, and deals with loss and grief and how you overcome that. But it's also a page turner because that is necessary, I think. Then I just delivered a book called After Death, um, 
which is a pretty daunting title. We'll see whether the publisher wants to stay with that. And I had great fun writing that. It was quite a challenge. I don't want to say what it's about, but it's about something people have been anticipating for 30 years going to happen. And there's great hope about what it will mean. Now, I've been thinking about it for those 30 years and thought it isn't going to be anything like what those who are dreaming of it think. What is it going to be like? And that's sort of what this book is about. And again, it's a, it's a highly emotional, personal book with a lot of action in it. And uh, now I've got two big books in work, and I never do that. Um, but I've been gravitating back and forth because I don't know which I like the most. But I think I've pretty much decided which one to go with. So I've never been here. I've got The Big Dark Sky, The House at the End of the World After Death, three books in inventory. I've never had more than one in inventory. And the reason for that is I'm, I'm dealing with people so enthusiastic and creative in the publishing company that it inspires you and it gets you to want to write more and better. And that's all you can hope for. Wow. That's wonderful. So what do you do when you're not writing? (laughs) Sleep. Uh, I drink a good red wine so I can sleep. Uh, (laughs) I, uh, I read and spend time with my wife and my dog and friends. Uh, We're not travelers. I, I don't have a lot of hobbies anymore. I collect books. I used to collect a lot of antiques and uh, antique sculptures, art deco items. I don't have any room to put any more of them, so I've sort of stopped collecting. So it's, uh, you know, we just relax. Uh, I find the older I get, the more time that's important is time with friends or time with my wife and my dog and just being able to have a little time to breathe. So that's as good as it gets. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting. I really respect all your opinions a lot and you have such a unique vantage point on the industry and I'm really grateful you shared it with me and and thank you. And I'm excited for all your books. Very cool. Well, good luck with your enterprise. I hope it works for me. Thank you. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> all right, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music.